Good morning. Well, Pastor Drew is off. Hello? Are we there? I think we're okay now. Pastor Drew is off preaching this morning at uh, the Worship in the Woods in Winton Woods, so you're stuck with me. Last week, we started this four-part worship series with a recognition that worship begins with God. Worship is a response. We don't create worship. We join in. We join into the worship that is eternal, that begins with God, and our worship is a response. That's why we can sing crazy words by the world's understanding, like, I'd rather have Jesus than anything else that the world has to offer. That's a response of our hearts to something that not everyone gets, but it's there. It's in us. We are made for worship. In fact, there's a book that came out about six years ago called Why God Won't Go Away by researchers who, as far as I know, are not Christians. a very influential book on the nature of the brain. And they had discovered in new levels of brain research that the parietal lobe, a section in the back of the mind that orients us toward our world, that helps us understand who we are and where we are in space and time, also orients us toward the transcendent, that which is not of this world, and that our understanding of who we are right here and now is inseparable from our understanding of that which is not right here and right now. In other words, we are made to worship. It's not as Freud suggested some mass neurosis. It's something we're made for. It's something we're designed for. This by scientists who said, hey, don't blame us, we just discovered it. We're wired that way. That's the way we're wired. And that's why the words in Hebrew that you see on the screen are there. These are the words to the Shema, the passage from Deuteronomy 6.4 that we've been singing for two Sundays now, but we've been singing them in English. This is the Shema, the first line considered by our Jewish friends to be the holiest words of all Scripture. Shema Yisrael, Hear Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, the Lord our God, Adonai Echad, the Lord is one. Say that with me. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And we'll talk about what that means and why God put that on our heart extensively this morning. But it comes down to this. In the Shema, there are two major parts to this. First of all, it says, Our Lord is one, not like the pagan gods, which are many in order to represent the different wants and needs of the pagan people. Our Lord is indivisible. We can't divide our God up according to what we want, because it's not about us. It's about Him. Amen? And secondly... It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the whole person here. The word heart in the Hebrew language literally means your innermost being, your innermost part. That part of you that came to life when God's Spirit breathed life into you. And soul means to breathe out. It means that expression of that life that God has created in you. That thing we think of sort of as ourselves. The middle of us, so to speak. And might literally means vehemence or intensity. Sometimes it's translated strength, like in Luke chapter 10, or mind, like in Matthew 22. It is that out 
outermost expression of what's in us, of what we are. The part that interacts with the world is the other half of that parietal lobe in a, in a biological sense. It's the outward expression of the whole person. In other words, heart, mind, soul means love God with all you are. It is God's desire that we love all of Him, for He is one with all of ourselves. That's what we're made for. And if we try and divide God, we mess it up. And we can't divide ourselves either. Because God doesn't want us to divide ourselves up like that. We are to be one in Him. Jesus' final prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Pray that, Father, make them one as you and I are one. So I'm going to suggest that as we take a little time to greet each other this morning, if you can cheat and look at the screen... You greet each other with these words. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. And if you want to cheat and just say it in English, that's okay. Stand and turn and greet one another in the name of the God who is indivisible. The God who is one. Fight the good fight. There is a kind of a worship war going on. The worship war, the struggle to give all of ourselves to God, to be free from that which is not worthy if you look at the words on the side screens this morning, worship in, in our English language literally means worthship, that which is worthy. And, it, and it's, it's actually been used as both a noun and a verb in our language. We mostly use it as a verb now. But if you think back on the somewhat antiquated term for addressing mayors and magistrates in the English and the British Empire, your worship was widely used. It was a, it was a term of great honor. In fact, your honor is used now in order to separate it from that which is less worthy than God. It was decided sort of in the Victorian era that worship should be used, your worship should be used exclusively of the only one who's ultimately exclusively worthy of our honor. Pretty wise choice on their part. When we divide God, or we attempt to divide God up according to our ideas, we divide ourselves we divide up our own nature. We divide up what we are made for and we get in trouble. And that's kind of what the problem we want to address this morning. And we're going to look at what Jesus teaches us about the solution to that. But first of all, it's been said by a lot of researchers that most churches in this country, indeed most churches, period, tend to be either inspiring or meaningful. Seldom both. Most churches are either inspiring but not meaningful, or meaningful but not inspiring. I was a very rousing, and I don't mean to, by the way, I come from a Pentecostal church background, so I don't mean to diss the Pentecostals, but uh, I was at a Pentecostal church rally some years ago. There was a young speaker, very fired up, very excited, and right before he was about to go up to speak, he said, I believe in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'm here to inspire, and that's why I never plan what I'm going to say. Because the Holy Spirit will inspire me what to say. And I, I just kind of shook my head and I said, well, okay. <laughs> and he walked up and he preached for an hour. And in the course of that hour, I think he said the same thing about 150 times. And it was pretty much a one-minute message over the course of an hour. And he sat down and, oh, I shouldn't have said this. I should have bit my tongue. But I leaned over and I said, Holy Spirit didn't have much to say today, huh? <laughs> inspiring, but not meaningful. On the other hand, a lot of churches tend to be meaningful, 
but not inspiring. William Meesum, who's a widely known church leadership consultant, published a study for navigators, and in that he said that from their research, approximately 80% of all American churches are what they call spiritless traditional. Meaningful. They've got the word of God, but not, not spirited, not inspiring. We ran into a little bit of a crisis. Uh, I, I underplay this stuff. I, I wouldn't call it a little bit of crisis. I would call it a big crisis. Our hearts were hurting early this year, this, this last winter. A lot of folks in leadership and staff and session were agonizing over a sense that our worship is not complete. We, we are failing to be that tiny percentage of churches who are inspiring and meaningful for whom worship is whole, it's complete. And we were agonizing over this, and we were, we were brainstorming and saying, what's missing? What do we need to change? What, what needs to be shifted? What works? What doesn't work? And in the midst of all this agonizing, one afternoon I walked over to the Sunshine House, a sunshine shop across the street, the little consignment store that's operated uh, by our Three C's ministry here, and I was talking with Jenny Smith, and Jenny and I had been discussing this, dialoguing about this. Jenny comes from a Catholic background and she said, I'm used to sort of inspiring but not too meaningful. And, and, and here I feel that we're kind of that meaningful but not, not always inspiring. And we were struggling with this and trying to figure out what's missing and what should be changed. And I'd spent so much time on my knees about this. And, and suddenly Jenny said, you know what? None of that matters. None of that matters. This is what it is. Mitch, sometimes it feels like we're talking about God, but not to Him. And we're singing about Him, but not to Him. Now remember that worship is not about God. Worship is to God. To focus on that which is worthy, on God Himself. And there was this old lady I've never seen before and never seen since, this dear old lady was standing over in the corner looking at some little things for her grandkids and she walked over and she took my arm and squeezed it and she said, you just make sure the Holy Spirit is there. And then she walked out of the store. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay God, that's one of those, you know, angels unaware. You just make sure the Holy Spirit is there. And I walked back from the sunshine shop physically shaking and tears in my eyes, and I said, God, yes, yes, but how do we get there, Lord? How do we get there? If we're just talking and singing about God, this sounds harsh, but it's true. It's not worship. It's not worship. At least it's not the kind of worship Jesus tells us about. And then I got to thinking about an old children's rhyme that was from a children's, a Christian children's album back in the late 70s called Bullfrogs and Butterflies. Anybody remember that? It was this, there's this little rhyme they teach children when they talk about worship. And, and, and they say that worship is all about, and this was so great. I just thought about this, and it's been in my head ever since. Why do we do the things we do, and who do we do them for? Why do we do the things we do, and who do we do them for? Say that with me. Why do we do the things we do and who do we do them for? Why do we do the things we do and who do we do them for? Why do we do the things we do and who do we do them for? And that, that little word for is kind of key. Worthship. God alone is worthy to be focused on. 
If we focus on our words and our ideas, no matter how true about God, are we a little bit like the heathen who divided up gods into what they were afraid of or what they wanted or needed? That's a little scary. That makes me say, ouch, when I say that. But Jesus says that. And let's take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to open our hearts and open our minds as we look at the passage from John 4, known as the, the story of the woman at the well. But first, let's ask the Holy Spirit if He will illuminate His Word for us as we take a look at that passage. Let's pray. Lord, I am so unable to deliver a, a message. I pray that Your Holy Spirit speaks to each of us today. You know how unprepared, I feel, to tackle something as huge and as important as this. And every person in this room is, is in a way, unprepared to fully grasp this. But you are gracious, Lord. You are gracious, and you can open our minds and open our hearts. And we ask you to do so now, that we may hear the truth in your word, that your Holy Spirit may illuminate it for us, that we may understand what it is you want us to know about worship because it's what we're made for. We know it is so important. There is nothing more important in the universe than worshiping our Creator. And we ask you to teach us, teach us afresh, Lord, to worship you in the name of our Savior, in the name of the one who gives us the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to take a look at the passage, again, the story of the woman at the well. Most of you are probably, just about everybody in this room is familiar with the story of the woman at the well. It's John chapter 4, and it's verses 7 through 26, that, what we think of as that story. We're going to take a look at them in segments first, and then we're going to talk about what Jesus is teaching us in each of these segments. First of all, the first few verses, 7 through 15, make the first part of the story up, if you will. It's the setup the sort of how-to-worship lesson that Jesus is about to launch into. And what Jesus is doing is he's encountering a woman who's a member of a cult. This would be the equivalent of a, what we would consider a Christian cult in our time, a group that kind of has the Bible and kind of has it right and kind of has gone off on their own. The Samaritans were a Jewish cult. And it's interesting that Jesus' words about worship, sort of how to worship, would be to a member of a cult. And on top of that, she's not even a believing one. It turns out she's not even a particularly faithful or believing Samaritan. Why would he address her? I think it's because Jesus is saying, well, you've all got it wrong. So why don't I point that out by talking to somebody who's especially got it wrong? What better way to illustrate his point? In verses 7 through 10, Jesus said, the passage reads, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman from Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is, who is that is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus is talking about something totally different than this lady is talking about. He's the master of that. He changes the subject. 
The subtext here is Jesus saying, let's talk about what really matters, shall we? So she's talking about water. Jesus is talking about religion, which he likens by, by reference to dead water, water that is not living, like water in a well that has ceased to bubble and ceased to move and has become stagnant and is bitter and dead. Spring water often turns bitter. It often becomes a dead well when the spring does that. So does religion. Jewish, Samaritan, and Christian. But the Holy Spirit alone gives life. And Jesus speaks now to her real need. He switches the subject from just water to living water. The gift of God, the Holy Spirit. So in verses 11 through 15, it continues. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and flock drank from it? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. There's a little semantic game going on here in this next passage. This is the cut to the chase passage that's coming up here. Because the woman says, in essence, oh boy, oh boy, one of those Jewish religious nuts. Some Jewish self-styled prophet type guy. Oh yeah, yeah, okay, give me, give me this water. She's humoring her creator, <laughs> but doesn't know it. And so it continues on in verses 16 through 23. As Jesus cuts to the chase, he says, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband. Oh, he's changed the topic again. Go call your husband and come back. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Jesus says, in essence here, Okay, lady, let's drop the pretense. You're not religious. You're not a faithful Samaritan. You're a sinner. He doesn't put it in those words, but that's what she knows He's getting at at this point. And so she tries to shift the subject. 19 and 20, in verses 19 and 20, she tries to change it. She says, well, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you, you say that the place where people must worship is Jerusalem. What is she doing here? Have you ever spoken to someone that says, oh, I can't believe this Christian stuff because you're all hypocrites? Or I can't believe this this religion stuff because, because you know, who knows which, I mean, the Methodists and the Catholics and the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians and the Baptists and, and they all claim to be the only ones, which isn't true. But it makes a good argument for someone who doesn't want to hear it, doesn't it? You ever heard all those, those deflections, those smokescreen arguments that people come up with? What other smokescreens have you heard before? Not just rhetorical, I'm, I'm listening. 
What are the smokescreen arguments have you heard for not hearing, for not giving a heart? What has anybody ever told you before about why they wouldn't, why they couldn't be religious? What about Hitler? Yeah, how can a God who's good allow a, a Hitler in the world? What else? It's a fairy tale. What was that? It's a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. Absolutely. Blowing smoke. Smoke screen. Say again. A bunch of hypocrites. Absolutely. In a sense, that's what this woman is saying. Well, a bunch of hypocrites. See, the Samaritans and the Jews had these little arguments, but the key argument was about which mountain you're supposed to worship on. The Jews worshipped, the temple was built on Mount Zion, which is the name of that central hill in Jerusalem. But the Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. And they, in fact, had even changed the scriptures. They pretty much used the Old Testament, but there were little passages asserted that said, you shall worship on Mount Gerizim, which is in the area known as Samaria. All of this was that convenient argument, that smokescreen saying, so how am I supposed to know? Who can know? And that's why I'm not religious. Once again, Jesus turns the tables on her. In verses 21 and 22, Jesus does not enter into that argument with her. He cuts to the chase. Verses 21 and 22, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem. Your worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. Jesus changes the topic once again. He says, look, let's cut to the chase. The truth is here, but you don't want to know. Because you don't want to give up your excuses. But I'm going to give you another chance. I'm offering you a real chance. And now Jesus moves in for the slam dunk. Verses 23 and 20 through 26. Jesus says, But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship Him. God is a spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I am. I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. And now Jesus has moved in for the slam dunk. When he talks about spirit and truth, Jesus says, can we blow this smoke away? Can we talk about what worship really is? Those who worship according to the way the Father wants them to worship. Worship as whole persons. Worshiping a whole God. Bam! We're back to the Shema. A whole God. A God who is indivisible. Worshiped by whole persons with their whole being. The title of the service today is We Worship God with Our Whole Being. But the subtitle could be Or We Don't Worship at All. Spirit. The word pneuma in the Greek here means literally a blast or a gust. Sometimes it's translated wind, sometimes it's translated spirit. But what it is, is the equivalent to that Hebrew word that breathed life into us. That Hebrew word that was referenced in Shema that says that life is breathed into us, it's blown into us, and that inner person, that innermost part of our nature, 
comes alive. Truth, the Greek word aletheia, means literally not hidden, not revealed, or rather revealed, not hidden, revealed, or visible. It is the outward manifestation of the inner truth. The inner and the outermost part of a person. The truth is that which we ascribe to, that which we commit to, that which can be seen. Jesus is saying that true worship is spirit-breathed. There's life in it, and it is expressed outwardly in truth. And the woman has no argument. And if you read carefully, you see a woman whose arguments are gone. And she's softened at this point. Her arguments are destroyed and she's become vulnerable and open. And unlike earlier when she said, oh, well, give me that water so I don't have to come back to this well anymore. She's saying, I want this. And it tells us just a few verses later that she goes off and she tells everyone, everyone about this Jesus. No one at this time was worshiping God in spirit and truth. And today, still, very few people worship God in spirit and in truth. Why is that? Well, first of all, there is a natural human bent towards religion or religiosity, a sort of controllable faith. The Jews had the truth. They had the word of God, but they were worshiping it instead of God. The other reason is that people lack the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, this living water that Jesus spoke of. In the scripture passage that we read just a few chapters later in John, Jesus promises to give that Spirit to us. He says that we will be able to worship a whole God now with our whole selves because of the gift of the Spirit. This is John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. If you want to look it up in your scripture passage in, in the Bible, John 37, 737 through 39, where Jesus says, Let anyone who is thirsty, Jesus continues with this metaphor of a well, let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. And as the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. There's that living water he told this woman about. The Gospel of John then explains that Jesus said this about the Spirit which believers in Him were to receive. The word heart, again, just like in the Shema, in the Hebrew, the word heart here in the Greek language, is, language means our innermost being. Our innermost being. So that God is promising to breathe into us, into the deepest part of us, His Holy Spirit, the gift of the Spirit. And this dead spring will become a living spring, overflowing with living water. So, flashback to what I said earlier on. This has been a year of, of, of good, healthy shaking up and turmoil for us in leadership here. As we looked at and, and, and tried to reach out towards this hunger to be those who worship in spirit and in truth. Who, who are full of both, of, of both inspiration and wisdom and, and truth. As we struggled with these things and, and dialogued about these things this year, this winter, and this last spring, our approach in worship and arts and planning our worship services here has changed. We were sort of in a, if we build it, he will come 
mindset for a long time. And that subtly but importantly shifted to building our worship around Him. So in our revised worship outlines, the planning that we do for our services, it now identifies our purpose for speaking and singing and everything that we do as to melt resistance, to remove distractions and prepare our hearts to receive God's Word. And the scripture and sermon, scripture readings and sermons should not be separate, our worship outlines say, should not be separate, which should be the high point of our worship. Not separate, but whole. We want to be, we long, we hunger to be, and I know you do too, one of those churches that is both inspiring and meaningful. We want to worship in spirit and in truth. Amen? In spirit and in truth. We want to be such as the Father seeks to worship Him. I got to thinking back at a time when, uh, when I was worshiping at a, at a great church, a wonderful church in California, one of the largest churches in the nation. And the reason it was so big is because it was so healthy. And there was so much, so much there. The whole, you could feel the Holy Spirit there. Very much like what I've heard people say about the legacy and the history of this church. You could just feel the prep, but there was great teaching, there was truth, there was spirit. And yet I'd been attending there for a while, and I was walking in in, in a sort of a blah state one Sunday morning. and saying, God, I'm not, I don't know, I don't feel like I'm getting anything anymore. I'm just not feeling fed. And it was like the Holy Spirit dropped a brick wall on me and said, feed yourself. <laughs> feed yourself. And I prayed about it. And then I, that was on the way to church. And I kind of forgot about it. At the end of the service, I was thinking that morning, I really got a lot out of the service today. It was great. I don't know what it was, but I mean, boy, the pastor Chuck was really on the mark. And the worship music was, I don't know what they did. But boy, they were really on today. <laughs> and then the Holy Spirit said, uh, you remember that talk we had? Oh, yeah. It's God's desire for us that we not only learn to feed ourselves, but then we learn to feed others. That then we learn to spread that gift of worship to others. Last, uh, last year, my family went down to Mammoth Cave. Have you here been to Mammoth Cave? Wow, what an amazing, awesome, awesome work of our Creator. What an incredible thing it was. Well, we had this tour guide who's been leading tours for 27 years there. 27 years. And I asked him... So, how did you get to be a tour guide? And he said, well, 27 years ago, I came as a tourist. And I fell in love with Mammoth Cave. It was just the most amazing thing I had ever seen. And so I said, I want, I want to know everything there is to know about this amazing work of nature. And, and I volunteered, and I went through the training, and I became a tour guide. And 27 years later... I'm teaching other people about how wonderful this place is. And he did indeed. We went on this tour with this guy. And he pointed out all these things that we wouldn't have known or noticed without his assistance. And yet when the tour was over, the, a year later, I don't remember what the guy looked like. I don't remember anything about him. I remember the cave. That's a good tour guide. That's what a tour guide's supposed to be. That's what we want our worship leading in here to be. We don't want you. Barb doesn't want you to remember Barb because she led in worship this morning. Or Bruce. The choir doesn't you want to remember the choir, how the choir sang. Drew doesn't want you to remember how terrific Drew was and how on he was this morning. We want you 
to say, wow, remember what God did? Remember what God said to me? We want every person that entered this place to go from being a tourist to being a tour guide. Amen. Yes, we want all of us. God wants us to be tour guides that lead people in the work of His creation, that lead them to fall in love with this amazing, amazing life He's given them and say, how do I get to be a tour guide? The Holy Spirit is the unremovable piece here. The Holy Spirit is the gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit is what makes it possible. There's an interesting shift in the nature of worship from the Old Testament to the New. In the Old Testament, the main word for worship was shakra, which means to fall down. To fall down in recognition of God's holiness and power, but with a little bit of fear... Two, remember the passage from Isaiah where he falls on his face and says, I'm not worthy to fall down. But after Jesus comes in the New Testament, the main word for worship is the word proskuneo, which means, this is odd, but it's a beautiful word. It means to lick. How many of you think of that when you pray, when you worship? I, I'm licking But what it is, is it's a word of devotion. It's a word of gratitude. It's a word of adoration. It's the word that's used for an animal that in absolute adoration, in worship, if you will, licks its master's hand. It's a different kind of worship. It's a response word that says, look at what he's done for me. Oh, how I adore him. Oh, how I adore this wonderful God who's placed His Spirit in me, who's made it possible for me to love all of Him and worship all of Him with all of myself. But, warning, if you go here, if you go to this dangerous place of worshiping God with all of yourself, you will never be the same. This is a cool quote. There's a woman named Annie Dillard who says in a book called Teaching a Stone to Talk about the impossibility of worshiping the ultimate God of the universe. She says, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, making up batches of TNT to kill off a Sunday morning with. This is madness. It's madness to wear ladies' hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to the pews. For the sleeping God may someday take offense, or better yet, the waking God may just draw draw us out from where we were to where we can never return. Amen. Let it be so, Lord. Let it be so. Brothers and sisters, if you're a believer, if you're a sincere believer in Jesus Christ, you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. It says in 2 Timothy, to let it flow. 2 Timothy, and this is by the way, this is Paul speaking to a mature leader in the church, not to some new believer. So in case you're thinking, I've been walking with the Lord for a long time, I don't think that applies to me. Oh yes it does. 
Paul says in 2 Timothy, stir up the gift that is in you. Stir up the gift that is in you. Let the Holy Spirit flow. One final little illustration here. There was a, there was a time in my life, a few years back, where I, I was aware of a timidity in me. A fearfulness, a timidity. And for some crazy reason, I was in a laundromat at the time, doing laundry. At the particular time, we didn't have access to a washer and a dryer. And, and I was sitting there waiting for a laundry to be done. And this thought flashed in my mind. If you're unafraid of worshiping me, get down on your knees and worship me right here, right now. And I argued. and I said, well, that's not God. That's just my impulse. And, and then the word in my head said, well, what if it is just an impulse? What's to risk? Because it was all about me at that moment. It was all about how embarrassing that was and how uncomfortable that made me. And that was why I had to do it. So in the middle of this laundromat with people peeking over their shoulders at me, I got down on my knees and I began to worship God. No, no bells rang out from the heavens. The earth didn't shake. But just a quiet little sense of peace. Okay, good. Now we can move to the next step. So as we enter into our time of our offertory this morning, as we're, as we're praying together in our pastoral prayer here, and leading into the time of the offertory,